Well, as I've said more than once, there's kind of a deliberate choosing, not that there that hasn't always been true, but I think especially true this year uh, in terms of the texts, the books that I've decided to preach upon. And there's a strong connection between what we just looked at in Habakkuk and what Paul demonstrates in the book of Philippians. And so for the next six weeks, I want to spend some time with uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians is really an illustration of Habakkuk's declaration of call for, if you will, that sounding of joy irrespective of the circumstances in which we're living. And Paul's letter to Philippi is definitely a a pastoral word of joy to that congregation. I think it's a 16 times that the word group for joy is used by Paul within this short little letter. And Paul's letter to Philippi is also a kind of last word for him. He is in prison when he writes it. Some argue about where he's in prison, but Gordon Fee, who I kind of read and just decide that I'm going to believe what he believes um, about Philippians, believes that Paul was in Rome at this time, uh, that it was the toward the end of his life. And he reflects on his life, uh, as we will see in some pretty poignant ways. And, and it's a last word in that sense, but it's also a last word in that, that Paul suggests a couple of times by using that word finally. Here's the most important thing, finally. He says it twice. It's kind of like uh, the end of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, where you're just sort of waiting for it to finish. Uh, and not, not quite yet. Or, or maybe, you know, when you're waiting for uh, a pastor to kind of get done, but seems to keep, <laughs> keep, keep going. It is a letter that is a letter of, of pastoral concern and love and friendship. And it's a letter of a reminder of the basic, most kind of seminal core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unlike some of Paul's other letters, it is not a theological treatise, although Paul, I don't think, ever set out to write a theological treatise. He was just dealing with questions that were before congregations. But it is also not a a letter where he's arguing against a heresy or trying to convince folks to not go over to that heresy. It is a very warm and pastoral letter that we see the relationship between pastor and congregation shine through. And as I'll sort of be hinting throughout, in a time where a congregation will be soon seeking a pastor, it's not a bad read to look at this relationship between Paul and the congregation at Philippi to kind of get a sense of maybe some answers to that question is what What is it that we want in a pastor? You could do a lot worse than the relationship between Paul and and Philippians. It's a wonderful example. But Paul, more than anything else, I think, is at the end here encouraging them to keep moving forward and growing in the faith. There's an interplay between his inviting them to stand firm in light of the difficulty of proclaiming Jesus as Lord in a world a Roman world that proclaimed Caesar as Lord, and Philippi was a very Roman, very Roman city culturally. And so that sense of standing firm on that confession, but also a sense of moving forward and and pressing on and claiming the prize and going forward in light of the promise of Jesus Christ. 
And that interplay between standing firm and pressing on is very much a, a depiction of what I think the discipleship journey in Jesus is all about. It's a letter that begins, as many of his letters do, with an expression of thanksgiving and a prayer, a prayer for the people of the congregation. And we're going to read the first 11 verses today, and those first 11 verses set the stage for, and we'll see these themes repeat in other parts of the letter. So let's look at Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, root us and ground us in your love as we listen to these words of Paul toward a beloved congregation. Help us to hear your voice today, inviting us to take up the invitations that you are putting before us. And give us the power by your spirit to, to take up, receive, and act on those things you are inviting us to share. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't mean to sound maudlin, but the reality is, is that when you're 66, you're looking back on a longer period than what you'll probably be looking for it to. There is a sense in which the memories are things that you think a lot about because there's more to contemplate in some ways back there, temporally, than there is to contemplate out there. And you really don't know what's out there anyway, so why bother? Just live it. Um, but you can't help looking back is my point. And part of looking back is noticing what has changed during one's lifetime. My grandmother used to say that when she started life, there were horses and buggies. And toward the end of her life, she died actually quite a bit after 1968. But I think I heard her say this probably in the early 70s, she says, I went from horse and buggies to watching someone land on the moon. You know, there, there's a lot in that period of time, a lot that happened, also a lot that stopped happening. And I think those are realities of the things that stop happening, especially maybe those little social conventions that we don't think that much about are actually sources of grief for us. And in reading this letter, I thought about letters just generally and just 
how incredibly acronistic they are now. People don't write letters anymore. You write texts, you write emails, but sitting down with a piece of paper and a pen with ink or a pencil with graphite in it and writing your thoughts and feelings toward another and then putting that in an envelope and putting a stamp and an address on the envelope and sending that through the postal service. Remember the postal service? When things used to come in your mailbox other than bills and advertisements? But letters, it just reminds me so much of the line from one of my favorite Wendell Berry poems that says, less and less you are that possibility you were, more and more you have become those lives and deaths that you have belonged to. I really miss letters. That there is a, a, a sense in what, what happens in, in letters and as that social convention has died that we've lost something really big. And it's one that especially grieves me because it was such a great way to bridge distance. It was a way of mailing a portion of yourself to someone else and literally probably leaving your DNA on the page and having it arrive in the other person's mailbox and depositing part of yourself on that page of handwritten text and sending it off to one you love who will open and read and maybe keep that letter. Occasionally finding it and touching it and rereading it and ruminating on it. And I suppose you can do the same thing with a text or an email, and you can even argue that the electronic communication is far more savable than letters. You know, we'll, we'll have more than enough electronic stuff to work with for long into the future, <laughs> and more that's to be created that will be saved uh, for a long time, whereas letters get tired and and rip and tear and deteriorate and, and go away and have to be recopied. But if you've ever received and saved a letter, you know how it's different. It's a concreteness that you don't have with the ephemeral sort of screen of electronic communications. It, it's something that rewards the receiver and reminds the receiver that she or he is being held by the sender in the same way that they are holding that letter. Now that's all very romantic, I suppose, but it is something that comes to mind as I think about and thank God for the person in Philippi who saved the letter that Paul wrote to them. I'm grateful that someone sometime around six, the early 60 AD saved Paul's letter for that congregation and that someone after that chose not to dispose of it and then others beyond them did the same and then started copying it over because it was worth saving. It's a joyous letter of gratitude, of celebration of relationship in Christ. It's, it's a symbol of a deep connection testifying to the resilience of that relationship between pastor and congregation and the Lord they follow. That triumvirate of three, pastor, congregation, and the Lord they follow that draws them together in this moment that Paul sends this letter, writes this letter and sends this letter. 
And as we're looking at those first 11 verses, I just want to take a few moments to unpack some of those things that Paul is doing there because he's really answering two questions. Or he's not answering two questions, but we can see that by asking two questions, we get at what Paul is doing because he's thanking folks and God and he's praying for folks to God. And that occasions two questions. What does Paul thank God for? And what does Paul pray for? And essentially the answer is the same in both cases. He prays for their progress in the gospel, that they would be growing in faith in essence. And so as we look at that first question, what is Paul thankful for? He's thankful for their progress in the gospel, that they're growing in faith, that they're taking on the mind of Christ and demonstrating that they are followers of Jesus. And he does that in three ways. He talks about how they are partners in the gospel, sharing in the gospel and the, and the progress of the gospel in the world, that uh, essentially that they all belong to the same Lord. And that word that is translated in our NRSV reading today and in other versions is the word partnership, sharing in the gospel or partnership in the gospel is the word koinonia. And we've probably all heard that word. We often use it in terms of fellowship or the relationship among the members of the body. But it, it really is the notion of, of having a common life together. And in this case, very specifically, a, a common confession and choice to follow the same Lord. We belong to the same Lord. We're about the same faith of giving witness to that relationship and the same task of, of being ministers of that gospel. And that way we're partners. We know that the one who is at work in us is going to continue that work and continue to be at work. And Paul celebrates all of these things in these first verses. So part of Progress in the gospel is, is that partnership in the gospel. It's also about occupying space in one another's hearts. I love this. Some translations of this text say, for you hold me in your heart. And some translations of this text say, uh, for I hold you in my heart, as, as Paul is. And what Gordon Fee says is, is, well, it can be translated either way. But the whole point is, they're each in each other's hearts. Um, and I think he's right that distance and circumstance do not dislodge either from that place of being held in one another's hearts. That irrespective of the circumstances and situation, as Paul will say later, whether I'm with you or separated from you, whether I'm preaching or silenced in this cell, we still share the grace of God and that grace is what holds us together. And then finally, the distance does not change any of this. And perhaps the longing and the grief of not being with one another is part of the gift and the glue that maintains our bond. And then we ask the question, what does Paul pray for? And what he prays for is continued progress in the gospel. In other words, keep on doing what you've already been doing. I pray that God will empower you to keep on doing what you've already been doing. That your love would overflow more and more, he says. And that love is, and his mention of it here, and the kind of love that he's speaking of foreshadows that great text that we'll look at in a couple of weeks in chapter 2. That selfless, self-emptying love of Jesus Christ. 
and that that love would plant itself in your heart and continue to grow you in that love of Christ to be able to give that love of Christ to others. That this love would also be the lens through which you see all of life. Paul uses these words that you might have knowledge and insight and to determine what is best. He's talking about discernment there. He's talking about the hymn that we sang earlier that that we, we pray that we might have the mind of Christ, that we might see through the lenses of Jesus Christ as, as we look at our world and seek to discern the path that we're going to take in it. And then finally, he prays that this love would transform the Philippians, that they would be pure and blameless, as the way he puts it. And then my favorite line, that they would produce a harvest of righteousness. And this whole notion of, of having the mind of Christ or reflecting the image of Christ to those around you, this, this love that's planted in you that grows into a harvest of, of right relationships, relationship with God and relationships with one another and relationships with those outside our community and relationship with all of creation. This harvest of righteousness, this harvest of, of right relationship, this fruit-bearing reality that is a kind of ecological prayer that you'll be in the space where you're functioning well in in the ecosystem that you'll be playing your part in this marvelous symphony of things going on and that you'll bring your voice and what you have to offer to that and you'll bring it and share it with all of those with whom you share this space and find that harmony of being rightly related to all things it's kind of like that tree that i read about in Psalm 1 at the beginning that's planted by water and that, that flourishes and that its leaves do not wither. It's in its right space and so is able to provide what it can provide to that space. In all of this, really throughout the book of Philippians, but especially today, I think we see the undercurrent of joy, this tone that just stays put throughout the singing of this letter. You, you can just hear it at the base. If I knew more music, I'd, I'd use a, a more intelligent description of this, but, but there's a tone that continues that fuels the whole letter. And as we'll see, as we read on, one of the, the signs that this growth, this progress in the gospel is taking place is joy. And joy is really that indescribable quality that kind of sneaks up on us, that surprises us, that, that overtakes us as we connect with the truth that we're a part of something good that is bigger than any one of us. Joy is a kind of contagion that overtakes us. You can't avoid it, and, and in some ways you, you can't conjure it up, what you do is you participate in it when you recognize that, that it's happening and you're being called to it. One of the situations in my life that God has used to bear fruit is our long relationship with the guide dogs for the blind. And so they come up often in sermons because they have been my teacher in so many ways through the eight dogs that we have hosted in our home over this period of time. And I remember our fifth dog and receiving our fifth dog. And I don't know whether you remember Dinah and going to SeaTac or Tuckwilla, Marianne, to get Dinah. And we met 
our community field rep, Michelle, who gave us Dinah, she was a transfer dog, which means we didn't get her at eight weeks old. We got her at about 16, 17 weeks old because she hadn't been doing well in another situation. And so she came to us. So we arrived at the parking lot. Uh, Michelle handed me the Dinah's leash and I just went tooling off with her, you know, to kind of get to know her a little bit. And I was surprised because we, we had always had, you know, when we got a new dog, we always had eight week old dogs who, you know, were unclear on what the leash was for. And uh, in most cases for those eight week old dogs, the leash is something to, to chew on. But Dinah already knew what the leash was for and was responding really well. And I just kind of started chuckling because she was so, uh, seemed to be so excited at, at kind of doing the right thing as much of it as she knew at that point. And as I turned around and walked back toward where Marianne and Michelle were standing, Michelle said in my hearing, but not to me, she said it to Marianne. She says, that's what you need to do this work. It needs to be fun. There needs to be some sense, she didn't use the word, but I believe that what she was talking about was joy. Something that was occasioned by something outside of me that was reflected from deep within me out to others. What Michelle was doing at that point is the same thing that Paul is doing here. He's delighting in the delight of the Philippian congregation. Joy is something that does that. It keeps building. It's about delighting in the delight of another, and it, it just keeps getting passed back and forth in that way. When Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the signs of God's work really is what the fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians. The first two of those on that list of fruit is love and joy. And then it, it continues with peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what we need to remember is that all of these point to something. They point to the fact that God is at work. All of these are indicators that something bigger than what we could ever conjure up on our own is happening in us. It's that harvest of righteousness that Paul talks about, that birthing of fruit that, that is somehow getting shared, and we don't even know it's, it's being shared. But what's important for us to remember is that when we see the signs of the fruit of the Spirit, is that it's a sign that God is at work. And so the, the invitation to us this day and every day is when we see it and rest in it, what we can also rest in is the truth that God's work is not only going on, but that it will continue. Let's pray. There are lots of invitations to despair, oh God. Lots of reasons to seek out anything but what might elicit joy. But in the end of all things, you are still Lord. And you have still made us for yourself and invited us in to your loving embrace. 
Help us to rest in that place and so receive and therefore begin to abound in love. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.